and welcome to the latest episode of the FT Advisor in Focus podcast, where we will be discussing business exits in the current environment. It's no secret that the advisor population is maturing. Currently, three quarters of advisors are aged 40 years and over, and many will already be considering their business's future. Whether it's a sale to a competitor, investor, or the firm's employees, strategies should be formed early on and bi proper business preparations put in place well ahead of a sale. So, what do advisors need to know about passing on their business in the current market? With me here to discuss this today are Victoria Hicks, Managing Director of the Exit Partnership, and Kanishk Swarup, Founder of Compound Wealth Planning. Hi both, thanks for joining us today. Morning, thank you for Morning. having me. Yeah, thank you for having us. So, Victoria, let's start with you. What trends are you seeing in the current market with regards to advisor exit strategies? Um, so we're still seeing, obviously, a lot of supply um, there. As you mentioned in your introduction, there is an aging population. So for a lot of the business owners that are seeking an exit for retirement purposes, a lot of those don't have businesses that they could transition internally to their team members. So a lot of them are still seeking that external exit. And I think a lot of that comes from the landscape that was um, around when a lot of these firms first set up. So the landscape very much lent itself to um, sort of sole traders, very small businesses. And so for a lot of these firms, they perhaps don't have the resource internally to be able to transition the business to the team. So we're certainly still seeing a lot of supply um, into the external market. But I think the area that really excites me is a lot of the talk now around internal exit strategies. So MBOs, EOTs, you know, we're really trying to bang the drum for this style of exit. Uh, it's a really nice way to get out. You know, you can transition the firm internally to your team. You can maintain that legacy. You can give them really exciting opportunities for their own future. But it all depends on you having the right amount of time to be able to structure that type of exit because it does rely so heavily, heavily sorry, on having the right team in place to take the business forwards. And for some business owners who have um, a good amount of time ahead of them, it might be that they need to um, take a look at their business currently. What areas um, do they not have resource? So a lot of it is going to be around recruitment. How can they extract everything that they know from themselves onto their team. So that's a big succession piece. And this can take years in the making. Mm -hmm. So it just harks back really to, again, what you were saying in your introduction, provide yourself with the time to open up more exit options. Because at the moment, we are seeing the majority of firms take the external exit route. But I think that tide will shift. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Um, of course, there is some something of a um, capacity problem kind of brewing as well. So I imagine it's quite difficult to to get people in to even plan these kind of exit strategies. Isn't that isn't that right? From a, from an advisor's standpoint, I think this this whole option of actually having an exit and having to proactively think about it is not something that partners and advisors commonly do. Um, you'd still meet a lot of senior advisors who, when you, when you, when I would ask them or you would talk about like, what's your exit plan? When do you plan to retire? They don't, they haven't actually thought about all the options that are possible. So there's also this big education piece, which is missing where mm -hmm. senior partners and advisors don't actually know what the new options and possibilities are in terms of potentially exiting. 
Um, and I think that's why I feel the market is quite in its uh, infancy, I would say. Mm-hmm. What about you, Victoria? Do you, uh, sorry, do you agree with that assessment? Yes, certainly. I mean, everything comes from education and that's what we're trying to do, you know, a lot is explain to people that they do have all of these different routes available, but time is their friend. But to go to the recruitment point, you know, this is definitely challenging. And I think actually this expands all the way back to RDR because the banks, the building societies, you know, they were a great training ground for young advisors coming through. And If we fast forward now 10 years, we would have had, you know, sort of 10 year qualified advisors and a lot of them in numbers that would have been capable of taking these businesses forwards. So what we have is we have a relatively small population um, of people who have the skill set, ambition and everything else, you know, to be able to become not just good advisors, but, but good business owners. And then this comes down to actually the the, the the employers, the business owners themselves. They've got to think more creatively around how are they going to attract this good quality talent in when it's in short supply and high demand. And there are your very large um, financial planning firms that have done a lot of acquisitions And they now have a number of exiting retiring advisors and they've got the size and scale to be able to put forwards incredibly attractive packages to advisors. So what the smaller firms find is that they are finding it incredibly difficult to compete for good talent alongside the big companies that can wave their checkbooks around. Mm -hmm. And this is where I say I think we need to get more creative. Because actually, if you are looking to recruit into your business, not just to grow your business, but also to think about your own exit strategy, you've got to be able to, as a business owner, you've got to be able to show these potential recruits, what does that career trajectory look like? Is it going to, you know, people don't want jam later. This idea, come and join us and, you know, in five, six years time, all of this will be yours. Actually, people want to see a runway into that. Is there a way to get them in as minority shareholders relatively early? Can you create a different share class early on so that straight away you're giving them some skin in the game and you're proving to them that you're going to provide that career trajectory? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Kanish? Yeah, I think think everything that Ricky says makes a lot of sense, right? Because I think especially the point about the larger organizations being able to attract all the talent with the force of, let's say, paying high salary, right? So I think increasingly I'm finding, and mine is, let's say, a relatively small practice, that the big organizations are able to pay a very high fixed salary to attract the talent because they can afford to take that risk, right? They can afford to try somebody for 12 months uh, with a high salary, and if it doesn't work out, they let them go. But for a smaller practice like myself, it's a huge commitment and you can't afford to just uh, take that punt, so to speak, and uh, hope that it works out. So I think that whole point about being creative, about how you not only attract good recruits, but also link it with your own exit strategy will have to be done much more proactively from a very early stage, I would say. Uh, in your journey as an advisor or as a as a company owner, as compared to something that you just start thinking about when you are five years before uh, exiting. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. I mean, you obviously aren't quite near the end of your career yet. Um, is this something? Just starting out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is this, is this something that you at this stage already think about? Do you already have a favorite exit strategy for yourself in, in your mind? Yes, I would say that uh, there are no concrete uh, structure or plans on how I would like to exit. But definitely, if you are on this journey and you're talking to clients about their financial journeys and what they feel their retirement would look like, you naturally tend to think about your own self and have a vision of how you would see this practice grow and evolve over the next 5, 10, 20 years. So yes, I have a good sense of what I would like to do, but I think what I need to do along, and I would say that for a lot of other advisors who are, let's say, relatively early in their careers, is to engage and start having those thought processes to putting putting some plans in place and starting taking some actionable steps around it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've actually um, spoken to um, some advisors recently who've told me that um, that even when you set up the business, things like, you know, the business's longevity um, formed part of how they thought about branding, the name of the business, you know, is it a name that they can leave behind when they exit rather than using their own name as the business's name, those kind of things. I mean, is this something that you considered, Kanish, when you um, set up? Yes. It's interesting you say that because when I was naming my own practice, we called it Compound Wealth Planning um, because we didn't. I didn't want to necessarily have my personal name in the company title for exactly the same reason, right? Because my vision is that the practice will continue long after I've left the, the, the business and it would be run by other advisors who, ha- who share the same philosophy and ethos of servicing and advising our clients. So... As you can see, it naturally comes into some of the decision-making. But I think that the trickiest part is actually how do you make sure that the people who are working in your team also have the same vision or also executing with the same mindset as you have as a business owner. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where I think having a share class or having your employees give them uh, some sort of a stake so that they feel like they are equally vested is probably the only way to have that long-term trajectory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Now, Victoria, let's talk a little bit about the current trends in terms of investment coming into the industry. Um, Where is the biggest interest when it comes to snapping up advice firms at the moment? So there's appetite across the board, but then there's reality. Mm-hmm. And we are seeing most of the activity taking place um, by, by private equity. And, and this is unfortunate, really, because recently we've ended up in a little bit of a storm um, where we've seen all these rising interest rates. And for private equity businesses, you know, they feel it. Don't get me wrong. A lot of them are debt funded. But they set about on this mission to three, four, five times the return on investment. And so their demand for wanting to continue to grow through acquisition is still there. It's just more expensive. OK, and that's going to start to have a little bit of a downward pressure on valuations. And we've already started to see that. 
where you've got the the smaller privately owned firms who are debt funded, they are really feeling the impact of these interest rate rises. And they've had to, for a while, you know, try to compete with the valuations that private equity firms were putting forwards. And there was always a trade-off in value between what the private equity firms could put forwards and what, you know, you sort of your smaller privately owned businesses could. But unfortunately, now that gap is 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 starting to widen even more because of the cost of borrowing um, to the smaller businesses. And you know, what do we think are going to happen to interest rates over sort of the 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 medium term? Well, we think maybe short term they might go up a little bit. Medium term, perhaps they'll start to come back down. But I think what everybody's in agreement with is we are not going to see the you know practically zero interest rates that we saw for 10 years preceding. Um, And so I speak to a lot of businesses of all shapes and sizes who are looking to grow. Um, And I think the the most challenging conversations or the most difficult conversations I'm having at the moment is with the the smaller buyers who still want to grow in that way. Um, But they're just finding it a struggle to do so, you know, through cash flow. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm talking to a couple of them at the moment and we're trying to get our heads together. Actually, we were just on with this last week to try and again think creatively, because this is what we're talking about. We're talking about a profession here and what we spoke about it in relation to recruitment, um, which is your more sort of organic way of growing typically. And we can also apply it to to acquisitions, which is your, your fastest growth route. You know, in both scenarios, the smaller businesses are in competition with the these larger businesses. And we've got two polar extremes. We've got, you know, very small privately owned businesses, which make up the majority of the landscape. And then we've got these these either large private equity backed firms or the ones who have you know an incredible amount of money to spend and there's not there's not much in the middle so it is then again about how do the smaller firms think more creatively around how they can attract acquisition opportunities and do so and manage it through cash flow without putting their own business at risk mm-hmm. um so yeah a challenge um we talk about culture before cash it's it's one of our sayings here at the Exit Partnership. And for that reason, a lot of sellers are interested in speaking to regional or more local firms where they feel that they're going to get that strongest cultural alignment. But then ultimately, if that strong cultural alignment is going to potentially cost them seven figures, they've also got to think about, you know, their own families and their own family security and everything else that goes along with it. Mm-hmm. So we are trying at the moment with a number of the smaller businesses who are growing through acquisition or who have historically going through acquisition, you know, to think about ways that we can still attract those businesses and perhaps they can't compete in terms of value, but maybe they can compete around the way that they structure the deal and, and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about this, actually. Um, have you seen any shifts in how deals are structured? I'm thinking, I think I read recently that, um, that you know, and a potentially attractive um, structure would be to give the um, target firm shares in the um, acquiring mm-hmm. firm. So, you know, for any future growth, they could actually kind of basically make a bit of um, extra money from that, from the fact that they are shareholders in the in the, um, in the the new parent firm. Is that something you've seen at all? So where we tend to see 
um, that shares are being given is is or, or offered as part of the package, I should say, is where it's not a retirement play. Mm-hmm. We tend to see two different types of sellers. We see those sellers who are selling because they are coming up to retirement. And so their role in the sale um, is to help the buyer to um, protect the client relationships that, that they've bought. So that helps the buyer and it means that the buyer's made a good purchase. And it also helps the seller because it means that the seller is more likely to receive in full their deferred consideration payments. So we have that, that type of seller. And where they're not really targeting growth, we don't tend to see you know equity and shares and things like that being given. Where we see shares being offered more commonly is where people are perhaps merging their business with another or they are being majority bought out um, or or fully bought out to become part of the new organisation. But actually, they're, they're still key players in this and they still have this ambition, this drive, this motivation to continue to grow. And that goes back to, to, to what we were saying earlier on. Having that shared alignment of where you're going should mean that you both have skin in the game to be heading in that same direction and to do so successfully. Um, So, you know, yes, we see shares being offered as part of it. Tends to be more for those firms that want to help to push for continuous growth. And I don't see it so much, or I don't, I've not seen it actually in in the retirement play um, side of things. Mm-hmm. But if somebody was to put that to me as a potential suggestion, straight away actually, I can maybe see more issues with that route than um, than problems it solves. Mm-hmm. And what I would never want a smaller regional business to do is to been so far to 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 onboard an acquisition to kind of try and keep up that momentum of growth but then structurally put themselves in 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 a situation where they could be impacted by having shareholders in the business that actually aren't part of the future of the business Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay that makes sense as well um and what is what are the kind of things that um, advisors should be considering when they're thinking to sell? What what is what kind of deal structures might be a good idea in the current environment? But it always I... starts with what the seller ultimately is looking for themselves, right? So first of all, they've got to sit down and they've got to think, you know, what are my objectives through this sale? And for a lot of people, it might be that. The they're going to take that capital value and they're going to convert that capital value into an income. Now, if that's the case, you could then consider a longer-term buyout, uh, less money is up front in that scenario, um, but then you might be able to apply perhaps some up- uplift to those deferred consideration payments or by taking the monies over a longer period. Ultimately, you are, might end up with more, but of course, as a seller, you're taking a risk because the buying firm has hold of some of your money for a longer period of time and you've got to be comfortable with their financial strength and their longevity and their abilities to look after and retain your clients to to put yourself in that position where you're happier to take that that longer term buyout. Then, of course, we have other sellers who they may have that immediate need 
for you know 50% of their business value up front that might help them to clear their debts to actually be able to fund their retirement you know so it starts with their objectives and then from there it's applying those objectives to the different types of acquirers that are out there to start to understand what different types of acquirers they can talk to mm-hmm. and kanishk what's your what's your view on all yeah i think i think from i think from uh, from uh, from our from an advisor's perspective i think the biggest thing they can do as they approach uh, that point where they're looking they need to evidence the the servicing and the the systems that they have in place so that when there is a new acquirer and the transition can happen as smoothly as possible i think in many cases ultimately the relationship between the client and the advisor is so strong and the fear of any acquirer is that that relationship would basically have to start afresh and they might lose clients and customers in that journey so if we have a good systems in place good backups good sort of data good transition then you would significantly increase increase the value of your business in the eyes of any potential acquirer mm-hmm. and is this is this what, what is your biggest concern when you think about your own business's future i think the biggest concern is just uh, how the new set of advisors who would be looking after those clients will they be able to at the very minimum maintain the standards and the quality of advice and service that my clients have come to expect and 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 the flip side equally will the clients be happy and comfortable with whoever would be taking on the responsibility of looking after them so i think it's finding that fit uh, within your team to continue that journey uh, on behalf of the clients mm-hmm. and with that in mind victoria what's um what can actually go wrong have you come across a few things that have really not gone right for the um for the selling advice firm or the um buying advice firm if it's an advice firm well i can talk about myself because we were bought at the end of 2018 and you know the cultural alignment was 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 way off and a lot of the, the conversations that we had pre-sale and and the reality of the scenario post-sale were vastly different to one another and you know it comes back to this culture before cash um common again you know you the, the success of any deal isn't striking the deal it's not signing on the, the the dotted line you don't actually know how successful your um your sale has been until you've had all of your money out and you're looking back and you're seeing happy clients and you're seeing happy staff right and you know then that you've done a good job you've 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 had your capital value that you owed and and you haven't had I shan't say haven't had any casualties because there's always you know some casualties um for from a sale but but by and large you know it's it's gone well but I think where we see things going wrong the most is where the integration piece is overlooked mm-hmm. and it's so so important and actually I'm really glad for consumer duty now because I think that it's made um the acquisition space a lot more direct and a lot more honest about what's going to happen what we've now seen more recently is we've seen 
that the FCA, you know, obviously um, are putting a lot behind consumer duty. They always start with the largest firms and then they sort of start to work their way down. So they have been um, talking to, conversing with quite a number of the, the more prolific acquirers. And across some of them, we've seen a slowing down. And I think that, well, I don't just think I know because some of them have told me um, that, you know, they have been told, how is it fair if you bought a business, you know, the top of Scotland, the bottom of the UK, you know, wherever it may be. And actually, if a client goes to you direct, they could end up getting a completely different proposition, charge, outcome, you know, you you name it, right? Mm-hmm. So these these acquirers now, they've really got to focus in on, on integration and what is it going to look like and what is going to happen with the charges, with the investment proposition, with the service that the clients are receiving. And that now is the starting point for conversations. Mm-hmm. And what is, final question, what is, how do you give yourself as an advice from how do you give yourself the best chance of getting the best value for your business in the current environment? I think, I mean, if I can start with that, I think the most important thing, I mean, I, again, we, we, I see a lot of uh, uh, deals being looked at or being, or happening around me. I think the biggest thing is, is that, is that engagement with the client? Because if you've got, engaged clients who are actively engaging with you as an advisor, who are uh, trusting in you with the advice and recommendations you're making, then that is really valuable for an uh, for an acquirer, right? What you don't want is, a, is an advisor firm where clients have not been seen for multiple years. And for the acquirer firm, that's a very hard proposition because they don't know if those customers are going to, or those clients are going to stay or they're going to leave. So I think anything that you can demonstrate to strengthen your bond with your clients is what is going to significantly enhance the attractiveness of your practice to any acquirer. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. Yeah, I think loyalty of clients certainly does help. But yeah, in terms of valuation, you know, it's if you want to maximize how much money you can receive from your business that would be down to the type of buyer that you would ultimately sell to. So, you know, we all know that there are buyers out there who will quote that they will offer up to 8% of the assets under management. Um, But actually, they're very clear that those assets have to come onto our platform, into our proposition, serviced in this way. And so, you know, in terms of where where can you find the highest value on the market, it's going to be through selling to a vertically integrated business that... um, really is only interested in servicing assets that sit within within their proposition. Where people are looking to maximise their value to, um, let's say, an independent acquirer, let's say, you know, sort of, even if we were talking about a privately equi- private equity-backed acquirer, you know, let's, mm-hmm. let's talk about most of the others out there. It all starts with making the best first impression. And this is going to become, and it is already becoming more and more important. What we saw um, a few years ago, 2018, 19, 20, we saw all of this money come in, right? And this money needed to be spent. So a lot of foundation firms were, were, were built. A lot of bolt-on firms were bought. 
and um, and we saw prices increase because of that. Mm-hmm. Now, with interest rate rises, with the pressure on integration through consumer duty, with the fact that most of these um, this this newer money, as as I'll call it, has already bought and put in place their foundation firms, the acquirers can be a little bit more choosy um, on on that side of things, and so. It is very much about how do you make the best first impression? How do you stand out from the get-go? And this is approaching the market in the right way at the right time. Having your data to hand, presenting yourself effectively, ensuring that if a buyer is sat there looking at five different business profiles, they're going to pick up your business profile because they can tell from looking at that, that you are a firm that cares about your clients, cares about your staff, and has your finger on the pulse in terms of compliance and in terms of having access to your data. So don't rush out to market. Um, Take your time. Make sure that when you do go out, it's in the right way at the right time. And then make sure that once you've had that initial meeting with an acquirer, If you want to continue talking, you are in a position then to provide them with your data pack straight away. So we're making the right first impression, but we are maintaining that impression throughout the process. Excellent advice and a really good place to stop as well. Um, Thank you very much, uh, both of you, for um, joining me today. It was really, really good to speak to you. And it's a fascinating field. We'll see see how it progresses as the consumer duty um, came in this week. Um, yeah. Thanks for joining us today and to our, uh, our listeners, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.